You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 119, Fort Cumberland, Nova Scotia, and Newport, Rhode Island. In late 1776, British war plans seemed to be going reasonably well for the British. In Canada, General Carleton had destroyed General Benedict Arnold's fleet on Lake Champlain and opened up a path for a spring invasion from the north. British General Howe had pushed General Washington out of New York and New Jersey and had him sitting across the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. By just about any measure, the Patriot cause seemed to be in serious trouble. Despite being on the ropes, many Patriots were still looking to take the fight to the British. Some still wanted to go on the offensive. A revolution is not controlled by a single authority, and in many places, locals will take the initiative. That's just what happened in Nova Scotia. Back in March 1776, General Howe had to evacuate Boston and he moved his forces up to Halifax in Nova Scotia before he could begin the summer campaign in New York. After Howe's army left Halifax for New York, there were few British soldiers left in the area. Recall that back at the beginning of the French and Indian War, Britain had removed most of the local French Acadians from the region and forced them to return to France. At that time, thousands of colonists from New England moved into the area to take the farmland that the French Canadians had been forced to abandon. Now, during the French and Indian War, it seemed like a good idea for Britain to populate the area with British colonists. But by 1776, those same New Englanders were at war with Britain. The New Englanders who had settled in Halifax shared the same political views as their friends and family in Massachusetts. Among those settlers was a man named Jonathan Eddy. He had served as a New England militia officer fighting in Halifax during the French and Indian War. When hostilities ended in 1760, Eddy took advantage of the cheap land and moved his family to Halifax. There he settled into life as a farmer and an elected member of the local assembly. In 1775, the assembly expelled Eddy for non-attendance though the real reason was probably more for his involvement in revolutionary activities. In February 1776, Eddy traveled to Cambridge to convince General Washington to send a contingent to Halifax to take control of the region. At that time, Washington was still besieging Boston and preparing his own offensive there. He did not want to deploy resources to begin another campaign. Eddy then traveled to Philadelphia to get the support of the Continental Congress for his campaign to take Halifax. Congress also rejected his proposals. Finally, he returned to Massachusetts to get the Provincial Congress there to assist with his plans. Massachusetts refused to provide him with troops, but did promise to provide arms and ammunition if he could raise enough men to attempt a takeover of Nova Scotia. As I said, by the end of March, General Howe had moved the bulk of his army from Boston to Halifax, so there was no way that anyone was going to retake the area at that time. 
but everyone expected that that army would be leaving soon. So Eddie spent most of the summer attempting to raise a regiment. Despite his aggressive recruiting among small villages in northern New England, Eddie could not raise even a hundred men. Most men who wanted to fight for the Patriot cause had already left for Boston and were already fighting in the Continental Army. Undeterred, Eddie took his small force back to Nova Scotia, where he was able to recruit some more locals and a few Indians, bringing his force to around 180. As expected, Howe departed for New York in late summer, and there were few British soldiers left in the region. Eddie's force at that point was able to target Fort Cumberland, which fell under the command of British Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Gorham. Like Eddie, Gorham had served as an officer during the French and Indian War and had settled in Halifax. He received an appointment as Deputy Agent for Indian Affairs. At the same time that Eddie was attempting to recruit a Patriot Corps, Gorham was attempting to recruit a Loyalist Corps. He also toured much of New England, mostly before the fighting at Lexington and Concord, to put together a fighting force to support the king. Gorham did not have much luck with recruitment either. He ended up with a total command of about 190 men. With the departure of General Howe's forces from Halifax, Gorham took command of Fort Cumberland. This was the former French fort Beausejour, which is probably a terrible mispronunciation of the fort name. It sat on the isthmus between Nova Scotia and mainland Canada. The fort was far from a priority for the British, leaving Gorham's militia with little supplies or anything else to build up the fort's defenses. Still, Gorham and his men used equipment left over from the French and Indian War, repaired the walls, and made the fort relatively defensible. In early November, Eddie's forces moved into the area. There, he recruited even more locals, including several members of local tribes, as well as some French-speaking Acadians who remained in the area. The force captured a small contingent of Loyalist militia under Captain Walker. The Patriots also captured a small sloop under Gorham's command, the Polly, along with its crew. Eddie's forces began to lay siege to Fort Cumberland. By some accounts, Eddie's forces had grown to over 500 men, although this number seems a little exaggerated. Gorham had less than 200 men in his garrison. Eddie had already taken about 60 men prisoner. However, Eddie had no cannons to use against the fort, while Gorham had three mounted cannons that he could use against any attackers. On November 10th, Eddie sent a letter to Gorham calling for his surrender. In response, Gorham suggested that Eddie surrender. Two days later, Eddie attempted a night attack against the fort, hoping that the surprise and confusion would allow his men to get inside the fort and take the garrison. Gorham's men, however, repulsed the attack. Following that failure, the soldiers serving under Eddie began to question his leadership. A council of officers voted to remove Eddie from leadership. Remember, these were all local civilians acting as militia. There were no professional officers or men around. A little over a week later, the new leadership council ordered another attack on November 22nd and again on November 23rd. They burned a few outbuildings, 
but again failed to capture the fort itself. A few days later, on November 27th, a British relief force arrived aboard the HMS Vulture. The ship carried 200 reinforcements, mostly Royal Marines under the command of Major Thomas Batt. Two days later, Batt led a counterattack on the Patriot lines outside the fort. The British killed or wounded an unknown number of Patriots while taking five casualties, two dead, three wounded, themselves. The Patriot forces scattered. Most of the men simply left the fight and went home. The British spent the next few days trying to chase down Patriots, but with little luck. They scoured the countryside and captured a few suspected rebels. They also burned the farms of those suspected of participating in the attack on the fort or other supporters of the rebellion. The locals protested this destruction of property. Colonel Gorham offered a full pardon to anyone who surrendered and agreed to take an oath of allegiance, with the exception of Eddie and a few other leaders. This upset Major Batt, who charged Gorham with neglect of duty. Gorham later received exoneration of the charges, which is not a surprise since men like General Howe and General Carleton were doing very similar things. The pardon gave every appearance of returning the area to local obedience and ended the Patriot movement there. Eddie and a few others unwilling to submit left for Massachusetts. The battle at Fort Cumberland is also sometimes called Eddie's Rebellion, and it ended up being a relatively minor affair involving mostly militia. While some historians argue that a Patriot victory there might have brought Nova Scotia over to the Patriot side and made it the 14th state, it seems unlikely that the Patriots would have been able to hold the territory against an almost certain British counterattack from Halifax. In any event, the British, despite a victory, did not consider it terribly significant. This relatively minor affair between militia and Halifax was happening while British under General Howe were pushing the Continental Army out of New York and across New Jersey, still moving slowly toward Philadelphia, which is some of the things I've talked about over the last couple of weeks. As I said last week, General Howe had joined General Cornwallis in New Jersey and was slowly pushing Washington's army into Pennsylvania. As the victorious army chased the Continentals across the state, General Howe had left his second-in-command, General Clinton, back in New York City. Clinton spent most of his days, I imagine, banging his head on the desk out of frustration. Since the first British troops landed in New York earlier that summer, Clinton had proposed one plan after another to encircle and trap and destroy the Continental Army. His commander, General Howe, continually rejected his advice preferring to push the Americans back slowly and always offering them an avenue of retreat. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago during the New York campaign, Howe and Clinton's relationship, which had never been particularly good, grew even more strained. Clinton attempted to push beyond Howe's orders on several occasions, only to receive a reprimand from his commander. During the Battle of White Plains, a frustrated Clinton spoke openly of his frustration about serving under Howe to General Cornwallis. When Cornwallis passed along these comments to Howe, the commander decided to leave Clinton completely out of any combat plans under his command. 
As the British and Hessians pushed the Continental Army across New Jersey, Clinton once again proposed taking a fleet up the Delaware River while another army pushed Washington back toward the river. Again, if this plan succeeded, Washington's army would be trapped and forced to surrender. But Howe once again said no and allowed Clinton's subordinate Cornwallis to lead the British army attacking Washington in New Jersey. Still, Howe needed to give Clinton something to do other than sitting in New York writing letters to London about how badly Howe was performing. Howe deployed Clinton to capture Rhode Island, or in particular, the island and harbor areas around Newport. General Howe's brother, Admiral Howe, needed a winter port for the Royal Navy. The freshwater areas around New York might freeze up for the winter, thus trapping the Navy and possibly damaging the ships. The saltwater port in Newport, Rhode Island, would be a much safer nearby location to host the Royal Navy for the winter. Newport would also once again give the British a toehold in New England and would also serve as a good post to block New England privateers from coming and going. Newport was thought to have one of the largest percentages of Loyalist populations in New England, thus minimizing the dangers from local militia. General Clinton received a force of about six or 7,000 regulars and Hessians and took General Lord Percy as his second-in-command. Some sources say the force was larger, but I think that may have been counting the thousands of sailors aboard ships that were carrying the army to Rhode Island. Howe had originally promised Clinton a force of 10,000 soldiers, but he reduced that number shortly before he set sail. A fleet of 83 ships under the command of Commodore Peter Parker carried Clinton and his forces from New York to Rhode Island. Now, you may recall that Parker had carried Clinton to the Carolinas, where the men faced an embarrassing loss at Fort Sullivan in Charleston Harbor. For more on that, see episode 88. Clinton had certainly not forgotten about it. He took this opportunity to bicker with Parker again over the incident. He demanded Parker take the blame for all the failure at Charleston and clear the cloud over Clinton's good name. Parker was actually pretty conciliatory and wanted to put the issue behind them, but making a fuss about it at this point only made the situation between the two commanders worse. Even so, the landing at Newport on December 8, 1776, turned out to be a non-event. There were no Continental soldiers prepared to oppose the landing. Washington's army was in New Jersey fleeing toward Philadelphia. Charles Lee's army was in southern New York, but seemed more interested in what was happening in New Jersey than attempting to oppose the British in Rhode Island. Before the British fleet arrived, the local Patriot militia had abandoned the defensive works along the shore and had removed most of the cannons. Most of the Patriot civilians in the area simply left town before the British arrived. A pre-war population around Newport of about 9,000 had fallen to under 5,000. Clinton found the much-reduced population remaining behind to be Loyalists or Quakers who were willing to submit to British rule. The British force landed unopposed. There were a few Patriot militia in the area who the British easily captured or dispersed. Now, as I said, for the past year, and even longer, Clinton had constantly recommended to General Howe 
that he should use forces to envelop the enemy and surround them so the British could capture the enemy. Instead, Howe just pushed the enemy further back, allowing them an avenue of retreat. Now, Clinton, in his first independent command, did exactly the same thing Howe had been doing. He landed his forces at Newport and simply allowed the enemy militia to flee. Clinton was not interested in taking prisoners. He simply wanted to take Newport as ordered and move on to other things. The Continental Navy was still hanging around Rhode Island at this time. Most of it remained bottled up near Providence. It did not confront the British or attempt to oppose the landing. In fact, after a British ship, the HMS Diamond, ran aground in January 1777, the Continentals were still unable to capture or destroy it. After the better part of a day, the tide came in and the British sailed on their way. Shortly after that incident, Congress suspended Commodore Hopkins from command of the Continental Navy. The Navy remained a non-entity of little concern to the British. General Clinton was wary about spreading his forces too thinly. He did not attempt to occupy the whole colony, but kept his forces in and around Newport. Clinton's goal was not to occupy large portions of New England. It was to secure a good saltwater port for the Navy to use over the winter. From there, the Navy could protect its occupation of New York, as well as harass Patriot shipping all along the New England coast. It also proved once again that the British could take control of any town they wished. The Continental Army or militia was not going to stop them. Receiving word of Washington's attack on Trenton, reinforced Clinton's view that he should not spread his troops too thinly, where small outposts would be vulnerable to a similar attack. The New England militia mobilized about 6,000 soldiers in the area around Rhode Island to oppose any attempts to move inland. General Howe, instead of providing reinforcements for an offensive, recalled many of the soldiers under Clinton's command for use in New Jersey. As a result, the British occupation would remain strictly on the defensive. In January 1777, General Clinton turned over command to Lord Percy and returned home to Britain. Clinton was frustrated at not getting any real command opportunity and still felt the need to clear his name over the failure to take Charleston. He also wanted to express his frustration over Howe's go-slow strategy and refusal to take any advice that might result in the capture and destruction of the Continental Army. Further, Clinton felt slighted by the fact that General Burgoyne, a more junior general, had been given an independent command in Canada. Clinton planned to resign his commission once he returned to London. As we'll see in future episodes, the king would not accept his resignation and still had other plans for him. But for the winter of 1777, once Newport was secure, Clinton hopped on a ship and went home to England, expecting that that would be the end of his military career. After Clinton's departure, General Lord Percy took command for a few months. Then he, too, decided to return to London. Percy, who had saved the British during the retreat from Concord and then led divisions in the Battle of Long Island and the assault on Fort Washington, had also regularly clashed with General Howe. 
he had proven himself a highly capable officer on the battlefield, and also had the respect of the officers and men who served under him. Like Clinton, Percy felt like he was being banished to Rhode Island, where nothing interesting was likely to happen. Adding to his frustration at being removed from the main action, Percy felt that Howe was questioning his abilities as a general. Howe, who was not exactly known for his aggressive strategy, wrote several letters to Percy over the winter, criticizing him for being too cautious in capturing territory in Rhode Island. Since Percy had followed orders, and since Howe's attempts in New Jersey to occupy more territory that winter had ended in disaster, it's hard to say for certain why Howe was so critical. It appears, though, that Howe saw Percy as a Clinton ally and therefore a political threat to Howe's leadership. By putting Percy in a theater where he would not see much action, and then generally criticizing his failure to impress, Howe seemed to be trying to diminish Percy's reputation among leaders back in London. But officials in London did seem perfectly happy with Lord Percy. They even promoted him to lieutenant general. Despite this promotion, Percy decided to return home in the spring of 1777 and resign his commission. Unlike Clinton, the king accepted Percy's resignation, thus ending his military career. General Richard Prescott assumed command of British forces in Rhode Island. And I'll have more to say about Prescott in a future episode. General Percy seemed content to retire and live out his life in wealth and comfort. He divorced his wife, who had been cheating on him while he was away, and he remarried. He had nine children with his new wife. In 1786, his father died. Percy inherited the family estates and the title of Duke of Northumberland. Ironically, Americans probably remember Percy's illegitimate half-brother, James Smithson, better than they do Percy. Many years after Percy's death, Smithson, who never visited America, left a large bequest in his will, which formed the foundation of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. Next week, Thomas Paine will attempt to reinvigorate the Army with his publication of The American Crisis. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. For anyone listening to this show near its release date, I want to remind you that I will be presenting at History Camp Virginia 
this year at George Mason University. That's taking place on November 16, 2019. My presentation is called The Politics of Independence. I'll be talking about the months leading up to independence and how we went from a nation where almost no one wanted independence to signing the Declaration of Independence in a matter of months. I will be one of many volunteer speakers at this great event. Dave Salatori, who ran American Revolution Today podcast, will also be there. Dave is a Robert Morris Circle Patreon supporter of this show. So if you're interested in History Camp, I think tickets should still be available as I record this. Go to historycamp.org for more details. Also, at History Camp Virginia, I hope that we will be able to announce the date and location for History Camp Philadelphia. This is something I've been doing a lot of work on, and we're still working out some details, but I'm hoping that we can announce this event for some time in spring 2020. Okay, so in this week's episode, we heard about a minor skirmish in Nova Scotia. There was not much fighting there during the war in what is today eastern Canada. I'm often asked why Canada did not join the rest of the North American colonies in fighting for the revolution. There's a decent cultural argument why the French in Quebec did not join, but the English-speaking settlers in Nova Scotia were not significantly different from the colonists in Massachusetts or Connecticut. In fact, many of those living in Nova Scotia had immigrated from New England and still had family in New England. There were some locals in Canada who were inclined to support the revolution, but not enough to hold that region. The people of Canada were not happy about the stamp tax or other attempts by Parliament to restrict trade or levy taxes, but the Canadians did not join in the non-importation agreements or take other aggressive actions. Much of the reason may be that the area was still lightly populated and almost entirely by farmers who were not impacted by taxes or trade issues as much as uh, some of the people living in New England. The English population in Canada also faced a threat from the possibility of local tribes or French Acadians rising up again and attacking English settlements so they were a little more reliant on the British regulars for protection from such threats. Whatever the early reasons, because the local population was not as violently hostile as their New England neighbors to the south, they quickly received an influx of Tories from New England in 1775 and 1776 that greatly increased Tory sentiment in the region. Some of these were Loyalist refugees from the evacuation of Boston. Others were simply those who expressed Loyalist ideas and faced violent threats from Patriot mobs in New England. Nova Scotia offered a safer environment for those who did not want to speak against the king. By 1777, the region had become a Tory stronghold. The attack on Fort Cumberland, also known as Eddie's Rebellion, really marked the last realistic attempt to move the region into the Patriot camp. This week's book recommendation is The Siege of Fort Cumberland, 1776, an episode in the American Revolution, by Ernest Clark. As you might guess from the title, 
the book covers the Patriot attack on Fort Cumberland. The book also, though, goes into the local politics and events that resulted in Nova Scotia forming into a Loyalist stronghold during the early part of the war. It's a well-researched and easy-to-read book that delves deeply into this topic in a little over 300 pages. So, if you're interested in reading more about why Canada did not join in the Revolution, you should check out this book, The Siege of Fort Cumberland. My online recommendation this week is another online book, The Memoir of Colonel Jonathan Eddy. Now, book may be a strong word, as this is really less than 80 pages long. A great deal of that is genealogy information about the Eddy family. There are only a few pages that deal with the attack on Fort Cumberland, and a few pages talking about Eddie's other adventures during the war. The great thing about these pages is that they are letters and other original documents that provide a great primary source for the issues being discussed. After the war, Colonel Eddie went on to found what is today Eddington, Maine. So, even though he did not secure Nova Scotia for the United States, Eddie went on to have a successful life in New England. If you want to check out his memoir, which was published by his family decades after his death, you can get a copy on archive.org, or look for a direct link on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.